Well, good morning. Ah, that's good. Before I begin, I would like to take just a few minutes to kind of share with you where I've been for the last 10 years. It's been 10 years since I was here in 2005 to 2006. And since that time, um, well, altogether, I've pastored in seven interim churches. Uh, the first one was in Manitoba. Uh, I got, I, this gets me every time. Manaqua. I was there for two years from 2003 to 2005. Uh, next, I came here uh, to Manitowoc uh, from 2005 to 2006. And then after that, I was in Ripon, Wisconsin, at Trinity Evangelical Free Church uh, for 2006 to 2007. There was a bit of an interim for an interim. And then I had uh, High Point Church in Madison's West Side, which is an independent Baptist church. It's not a free church. Uh, from 2008 to 2010. And then about a month later, I was called to be an interim pastor at Mount Horeb Church at New Hope Evangelical Free Church uh, from 2010 to 2012. From 2012 to 2013, I was in Lodi, Wisconsin, at Lake Wisconsin Evangelical Free Church. And then I finished up from 2013 to 2014 in uh, Ripon, uh, not Ripon, but in Rice Lake, Wisconsin, at Maranatha Evangelical Free Church. It was at that time that I felt God's hand of calling, uh, giving me the freedom to retire. I retired uh, and have been busier now than I have been as an interim pastor. Uh, we are, how many of you are familiar with the term the sandwich generation? Some of you may be in that generation. Uh, my mother is 93 years old. My dad died about four or five years ago. For 30 some years, they were living in Florida. And uh, my mom now felt like it was time to be closer to family, so this summer we moved her from Largo, Florida, up to Beaverdam, Wisconsin, where we live. Uh, Karen's parents, uh, her dad passed away in December of 2015 at 95. Her mother now just turned 95 and was uh, languishing by herself in Peoria, Illinois, so the family decided it wise to move her to Denver to be closer to family. So Karen and I were left with the responsibility of uh, cleaning up their house and getting that ready for sale, and then cleaning out their apartment and getting that cleared up for the next resident to come in at their independent living situation. Uh, not to mention that, we are going to Door Creek Church on the east side of Madison. Uh, when we're in town, that is, uh, we attend a life group during the school year, which meets uh, twice a month to go over the sermon. And uh, I was particularly called and moved by uh, the mission of that church. Uh, they told us at the, at the beginning of the, uh, uh, when we first there, that, that Madison has one of the largest of the nation achievement gaps between graduating white students and uh, uh, students of color. And so the church is very intentional, reaching out into the schools to try and be a, a witness for Jesus to help bridge, uh, to small, uh, shorten that gap. And so I was moved by that, and I'm now a big brother uh, to a child of color at one of the schools in Sun Prairie, and we meet every Monday afternoon for an hour or so, and we try and uh, share with him uh, what it means to be grow up in a, in a, with a certain uh, perspective of, uh, of learning and growing and getting um, more mature. So that's what's happening to me and my wife. Uh, there's the next picture is a picture of our family taken in 2005 here on this platform and uh, at, uh, at uh, Faith Church. 
back then it was called Faith Evangelical Free Church. I don't know when you guys decided to get the change, but that was, I think, slightly after I, I left. Uh, you can see that little girl on the left is Hannah. I think she was about two at that time. Uh, our daughter in the middle was unmarried, and my son and daughter-in-law are there, and they only had the one child. Uh, this picture of my son was taken just last July 4th here, at a, and you can see things, uh, things have changed with young people. They don't sit on their hands like older people do. Uh, they now have that little girl on the left there is uh, that's now 12 years old, and she just started her first year in middle school. Uh, the other two boys, the oldest one is Jaden, and the youngest one is Philip. And uh, about three years ago, they adopted a girl from the Congo, uh, and her name is Rhea. Uh, she is about, four, about three or four years younger than that other boy, the younger boy, but she certainly is growing up. I told somebody before the service that my son is trying to treat, teach her how to dribble uh, <laughs> because I think she's going to have a career in basketball. Uh, my daughter was single when she was here, and now she is married. She married a uh, U.S. Uh, he's a naturalized U.S. citizen from Nigeria. He came to the United States to do his graduate work, and uh, at University of Illinois, he's a. I, I like to say this because I'm bragging a bit. You don't mind if I do that. He's a CPA, MBA, and he works for BMO Harris Bank, and they're located in New York City, and they live in an apartment building just next to what used to be Ground Zero, uh, the Memorial Gardens. You can look out over the restaurant that's connected to their apartment and look down over the gardens, the, the gardens, the, the wells, the, those showers that they have there. And, the, and so uh, they weren't there when it happened. She was married in 2011. And that little boy that they have is now going to be three, and he's the most energetic, fun-loving, happy-go-lucky kid. We're going to have the privilege of seeing him sometime next week. So that's what's happening in our family uh, over these last 10 years. And uh, it is so good to be back here, see so many familiar faces. At the beginning, uh, at the end of this message, I will show you, uh, share with you why I chose this particular topic, and it has a particular reason uh, for my sermon this morning. Would you please open your Bibles? If you, uh, hopefully you brought them. If not, I think there's some Bibles in the uh, in the in front of you, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. The message is on biblical church leadership. And I'll read while you follow along. Here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. So let's talk, first of all, about who it is that we're talking about. Now, some of you may be familiar with some of our larger denominations, and they seem to have uh, a different understanding of what the word overseer means. Uh, in the King James Version of the Bible, uh, this word is translated bishops. For example, in 1 Timothy... Um, 
you will find uh, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Now that's in Philippians chapter 1. But this is what the uh, King James says. Uh, Paul and uh, Tim Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints of, uh, in Christ Jesus. And in the King James Version, they say the office of bishops, uh, which are set in Philippi, which are bishops and deacons. In 1 Timothy 3.1, the passage we just read, uh, the King James has this. This is a true saying, if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. And so some of these larger denominations have seen that there's really, with the word bishop, there's really kind of a three-tiered uh, 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 management of the church. There are those who are bishops and oversee the denomination, there are those who are elders and oversee the ministry of the church, and then there are those who are deacons and they oversee a particular ministry in the church. The King James has in Titus, it also says this, uh, First Titus says this, therefore a bishop must be. And so you can see where this confusion comes about. But notice in Paul's dialogue with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, in verse 17 he calls for the elders and later on, he calls them overseers or bishops. Now, it's obvious that we're talking here about the same group of people. And so when he calls them overseers, then whatever he calls them next must be related to the same group of people, the elders. Uh, even if we substitute bishops here, Paul is still talking about the same word. The Greek word for bishop in the King James is the same word we use for overseers and is where we get our, Greek, our English word Episcopal. And the Greek word for elder is where we get our, Greek, our English word Presbyterian. And again in Philippians chapter 1, you see that Paul is talking about the same group of people he wants together with all the overseers and, all of, uh, and the deacons. So, if overseer is used what does it signify? An overseer is the title we give to somebody with a perspective of what type of function they have in the church. An elder views the, uh, the leader from the perspective of, of status and position, and the shepherd refers to their responsibilities. And one commentator said this, the overseer, referring to function, is the equivalent of elder, referring to position, that they are interchangeable terms and that the churches in 1 Timothy and Titus envision a plurality of overseers or elders. Matter of fact, and oftentimes the evangelical free church, of which this is a member church, is often called a denomination, but in actuality, the evangelical free church is really called an association of churches. Let me read from their uh, mission statement. We are committed to Jesus Christ, to the gospel, and to one another. And here's the distinction. As an association of churches that align themselves with the same statement of faith, we are distinct but deeply connected. The Forest Lakes District, uh, of which we are a member, has a mission statement that says this. We exist to strengthen our member churches so that together we may multiply healthy churches among all people. Both the Evangelical Free Church and their ge uh, geographically based districts uh, exist to serve and support local churches and to facilitate larger and more global evangelism 
that one church by itself could not accomplish. We don't have bishops. We don't have cardinals. We don't have popes. In 2008, the Evangelical Free Church of America made changes to our doctrinal statement. Nothing could happen without each church's participation and approval. And this was done through the district uh, the church representatives that were sent to a, uh, the national conference. So, if we're talking about overseers and elders as being the same group of people, what must these people be like? And Paul begins this with a statement that he uses five times in the pastoral epistles. Here is a trustworthy statement. This statement is found in 1 Timothy 1.15, which is one of my favorite verses of all time. I'm going to tell you why in just a minute. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came in to save the, the world, into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. The reason I like that particular statement is, first of all, it's something that is a doctrinal statement that is, we can all say amen to. It's a trustworthy statement worth a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, Paul wrote. The reason I like this is because I want to debate with Paul. Why do you think you are the worst of all sinners? Because I think Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst of all sinners. Now I know why Paul said that. He persecuted the church, put Christians in, in prison, I was, was there when uh, Stephen was stoned, taking, uh, taking note of everything. And I can understand his perspective when he was, uh, met Christ uh, in the third heaven uh, as he was on the way to Damascus. I can understand why that revelation shook him from being an a, opponent of the church uh, to one of its foremost evangelists and apostles. But ladies and gentlemen, uh, before I became a Christian, I too was one of the church's worst critics. I, too, was one who belittled people who thought church was important. I thought they had to have Christianity because they needed a crutch because they couldn't work themselves, uh, get along in life with, by themselves. And I belittled and mocked them. And that, in that July of 1977, when I met Christ, I didn't meet him like Paul met him, uh, but when he, uh, when he forgave me of my sins, I realized what a, a despicable, uh, a nasty person I must have been. Uh, to people. Uh, and when I came back, I, was, uh, I did this out in Oregon, when I came back into uh, the northwest suburbs at Arlington Heights Free Church, um, um, the people in the Sunday school class applauded and were so thankful because they were lifting me up in, my, in the prayers. And I, was, I came back and I was so embarrassed. I came in and I said to myself, you know, I need a crutch just like you guys do. When I had belittled and demeaned people who had that before. So I would like to argue with Paul. I, I know it's, it's a mood issue because I don't think at that point who cares, but uh, um, I, I just would like to argue with him. So he says, here is a trustworthy statement. And he says these things five times in the pastoral epistle. Four of those times it's connected with a doctrinal statement. The one time it's connected right here with what we call a duty code. And so 
what, what I believe Paul is saying here is that these other four times, what I'm going to pronounce to you is not only something that's been well accepted in these churches, but something that's been promoted. These are like sayings that they had, these doctrinal sayings that they had to remind themselves of, of, of the truth of the Scriptures. But he is saying that this is so important that it's commensurate. If the church is going to succeed, you need to pay attention to what's going to happen in these next words. So he uses it in order to express what we call a duty code. And he says this, if anyone sets his heart on, or it means this, if anyone has a heart moved by God's calling, <clears throat> me, there are many reasons why someone would desire to be in a position of authority in a church. Many of them may be suitable in the world, but would be devastating in the church. You see, ladies and gentlemen, when it says here, if anyone sets his heart, God must have the, be the, at the very root of this calling. And I honestly believe, I honestly believe this, that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and you are indwelt by his Holy Spirit, and you're sitting here this morning, I'm going to tell you a truth, that with every believer, God gives a burden. God gives you a burden. It's something that you worry about or anxious about or concerned about. Uh, you have a passion. Now, I, I was going through your website, Faith Church, and it was interesting. Now, all, all of your staff members have wonderful biographies in that page there. And I'm not saying anything about, about but I'm going to mention three, three of them had the word passionate in their biography. They feel passionate about worship. They feel passionate about maturing adults. They feel passionate about this. And you know, ladies and gentlemen, I believe that that passion began with a burden. It begins with a burden. You see, there's a, there's a, a <coughs> uh, something that uh, came in uh, with uh, Ezekiel. If you ever read through the prophet Ezekiel, you notice that God put Ezekiel through a whole series of trials. I want you to lie on your side for this number of days. And after he did that at night, I don't know about you, but if you had to stay on your left side all night long for 70 days of sleep, that side would get a little bit irritated. And then he said, I want you to sleep on this side for so many days. And he said, why, Lord? He said, that was because I had this number of days to represent the apostasy of the northern kingdom and I had this number of days to sleep for the apostasy of the southern kingdom. He, he had him uh, uh, all sorts of trials, all sorts of things he went through, and he said finally, why, Lord? He took his wife, and he wasn't allowed to mourn. He wasn't allowed to mourn for, for the death of his wife. And he says, why, Lord? He says, why? Because I want you to feel the pain that I feel the pain that I feel about my people disobeying me. You see, what he did there with Ezekiel was he created a pain inside of Ezekiel that was to parallel the pain that God felt uh, for his people. Now, it may be uh, that you're, you're called to a ministry in the local church. It may be that you're called to a ministry in a parachurch ministry, a, a related thing. Uh, when I was here, we started that... Uh, Pregnancy Help Center. 
that was started when I was here. Uh, those community gardens out there were started when I was here. I remember we, uh, I think it's over there now, and I think it was over here before. Uh, I remember going out there, and I had uh, taken case, a case of water, uh, bottled water, and I had uh, put, uh, for whoever believeth, uh, no, it was, was John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomever believes in him shall not perish but have life eternal. And I put that on the bottle, and I would walk out and give it to the, the Hmong uh, people who were out there gardening. Because we were interested, we had fifth quarter here when I was here. How many of you remember that, fifth quarter? And that was, a, that was a ministry to try and help kids have fun after the football games without going out and getting drunk. It was an opportunity to get people into the church so that it wouldn't be so foreign to them if they were invited by a friend to come for a, a something that was a, a, a Christian-based youth ministry. See, these are things we had burdens for. We had a real pain. So many people out there, we could, we could help. So many people. It doesn't have to be even with, it could be a Christian witness within a, within a secular organization, such as I do with Big Brothers and Big Sisters. You see, ladies and gentlemen, it's a pain that God gives you. It's an ache in your heart over one particular ministry. Some of you are, are, are in children's ministry right now because you had a, a burning desire to see that kids heard the gospel. Some of you are doing BBS this summer because you want neighborhood kids to hear the gospel. It's a burden, and that burden translates into a calling. God takes that pain and that hurt, and he moves you into a ministry, and that's a calling, and, and that's what gives you passion, and you do it according to your personality. Some of you may be just givers. Some of you may be servants. Some of you may be prayers. Some of you may be organizers. Whatever the case may be, God gives you that burden, and he's calling you to serve. He, he's giving you the, the gifts to be able to do this. I believe that every Christian, every believer is, has a burden. And I'm going to share with you at the end why mine is this. And I believe that one of the burdens that people have is to be able to oversee and minister and lead the church to accomplish God's great commission. Leaders who lead well deserve our respect. One commentator said this, Oversight is a ministry that makes a positive contribution to the life of the church and when done well, brings honor to the leader. But Paul says this, they must be above reproach. And he, it's, a, it's, a, it's a literary thing called an inclusio. Uh, in the Bible, sometimes they begin with a statement and they end with a statement, and that, that forms the beginning and the end of whatever he wants to talk about. So in verse 2, he says, must be above reproach, that is blameless, and a behavior that has observable results. And then in verse 7, he says this, must have a good reputation with outsiders. He said, above all, they must be a credible witness, and they must have the respect of the people that they lead. They must have the respect of the people in the community in which they work and live. And then he goes on and he talks about this list of positive character qualities. And the first one has risen up some very much interesting questions. The husband of one wife. Now, is Paul saying that you, the, the, never, the never married person cannot be an elder? Is he saying that somebody who's widowed and then remarried is, cannot be an elder? Uh, some very respected uh, commentators believe that Paul is talking about polygamy. 
which wasn't widespread at that particular time, but which was common enough to make it a, an exclusion for service in the church. How about the divorced and remarried person? Well, one commentator, and I particularly like the way he said this, he said, no sexual immorality or marriage and remarriage in breach of accepted norms where the scripture gives permission, so must we. And you have to understand that divorce is not, this, is not the unforgivable sin. And so is there uh, an opportunity for repentance? And is there an opportunity to seek reconciliation? Uh, yes, there are. And all these things must be weighed when you consider what this particular qualification talks about. He talks about temperate, which means moderate. Self-controlled, which means control over one's behavior. Respectable means that he has to be honored uh, amongst his peers. Hospitable means he has to have an open home, an opportunity for him to engage with uh, strangers. Oftentimes in the biblical term, uh, biblical times, hospitality related to uh, traveling itinerant missionaries and preachers, so they would have a place to stay. And here's a characteristic that's only unique with the elder, able to teach. He must have the ability to able to teach. That is the gift of teaching. And then he goes on and he talks about prohibited behavior. He's not given to drunkenness. It doesn't mean that he abstains, but he does uh, uh, abstain from excess. He's not given to violent language, uh, violent behavior, bullying, anger, verbal abuse. But he's gentle. He's not quarrelsome. He doesn't go a balance between honesty, courtesy, and tolerance. He's not a lover of money, but he is generous. And then he goes on and talks about this household proficiency. And he says, how can somebody who expects to be a manager of the church and not be a manager of his own home? He must manage his household. And then Paul adds the qualifier, well. He must manage his household well. And he must see to it that his children obey him with proper respect. So when you tell your, your uh, middle school student to come in at night, and he does so, and then just before he gets to the door, he spits on the ground. That probably isn't the kind of respect that he's looking for here. But he's talking about uh, parents whose children give them proper respect, proper motive, uh, modifiers. And then he talks about this last one that's also unique for an elder. Must not be a recent convert. And then he talks about why. Because conceit. It's the maturity in the faith, it's the realistic self-appraisal that breeds humility and is God-dependent. Because a, a nude believer might be very much tempted to take that authority into his own hands and become a power monger. It's a fascination that is uh, the same that is talked about with Satan. He talks about these two qualities, the ones that I've had in, in bold print. These are the two most unique qualifiers. And one commentator told me, he said, uh, that, that the recent convert has to be kind of taken into uh, accommodation, because Paul, when he planted these churches, did not have a lengthy time to mentor and disciple these new believers. And so oftentimes he would spend about two years in the church, and at the end of that time he would appoint men to be elders, and they'd only been converts for two years. And so you have to understand that that recent convert needs to be taken with a, a little bit of uh, consideration. 
Uh, when I became a Christian in 1977, I started going to a church plant out near where we lived in Illinois, in Algonquin, Illinois. And it was a church plant, met at a school, and the preacher was one of these guys. Uh, I'm a teacher. I've been a teacher for 20 years before I became a pastor. And I, uh, people tell me I got the gift of teaching, so be it. Uh, be it. But nonetheless, this guy was a preacher. Because when you sat in the pew and he preached, it was almost like his hand came down and grabbed you by the throat and said, well, do this. No, he didn't do that. Although he was six foot two and was a former bodybuilder, he could have done it. But nonetheless, he, he, he just, you know, sitting under his teaching, you grew leaps and bounds. And one day, not many months, uh, I was probably a year, year and a half after that, he sat me down in, the, in our family room and he said, Bill, I'd like you to consider being an elder in our church. I was flabbergasted. Me, an elder in the church. And I'll say more about that in a few minutes later. But you see, these are the two things that are unique. You know what, ladies and gentlemen? If you go through that list of qualifications, except for able to teach and being a recent convert, all of those qualifications are applicable to everybody in the church. Everybody in the church should be doing these things. Everybody in the church should exhibit these kinds of things. One commentator wrote this, he said, what is mandated for the whole community must be exemplified in the leaders. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, what I'm saying is that a leader in the church not only, uh, not only is able to teach and is not a recent convert, but you should be able to see evidences and observ observable things in their life that give, give credibility to those characteristics being in their, in their lives. They are exemplified in the leaders. One other person said this, the prime characteristic of the life of a pastor, elder, overseer is that it has a life that reflects Christian values, Christian morality, Christian conduct, and Christian integrity. Now let's be perfectly clear. The elder is not a sinless person. No such person exists and has ever existed this side of glory. But they are to be able to exhibit ongoing growth in all of these characteristics that you can observe and see. So what is this noble task that Paul is calling us to? Spoke of Timothy in, in, uh, in uh, this noble task. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles a couple of books later in 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. He says this, To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. So what Peter does is he gives us a bit of a, of a testimony about why he is qualified to be able to say what he's about to say. And he gives them three things that these people are supposed to do. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. The first thing that he talks about is being a shepherd of God's flock. Now, you remember that conversation that Peter had with Jesus on the beach after his resurrection? In John chapter 21, he talks about this, and they were out fishing, and there was a person starting a fire, and, uh, and, uh, and he said, go fish over there, and they caught all this fish, and then Peter recognized that it was the Lord, and he threw off his garments, and he started swimming to the beach, 
And there they took some of the fish they had caught. They were having supper. And Jesus said this. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because he, Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. I want you to notice something. Jesus asked Peter three questions and then gave him three admonitions. He did not say to Peter, Peter, do you love my sheep? He said what? Peter, do you love me? You see, ladies and gentlemen, in order to be a shepherd, the leader of the church must lead from an overflow of his relationship with Jesus Christ. I once read someplace, it was a very interesting thing. It says, a leader can never take his people to where he himself has never been. He may be able to point them in the right direction, but he will never take them there. And that really, really convicted me so that I maintain my own personal hotline with Christ. And I ministered not from textbooks or leadership books, but from an overflow of what God was doing in my life. You see, that's what he says. Peter, do you love me? And yes, Lord, you know uh, you know why he asked him three times? Because Peter denied him three times. And he was just making a point. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, when you talk about shepherding God's flock, you have to lead from an overflow of a relationship with Jesus Christ. I read one statistic one time that says 75% of pastors do not have a personal devotional life. Now, I know that there's a lot of stuff that you can glean for yourself while you're preparing for a sermon. But you know what, ladies and gentlemen? It's a different way to read Scripture when you're preparing a sermon than when you're reading the Bible for yourself. And you see, so one, one person said this. I said, I wish pastors could have a fuel gauge on their forehead. Because then the congregation would know when they're running on empty. You see, ladies and gentlemen, a a lot of us minister uh, from a position of of just being able to glean from the scriptures what we have for the congregation instead of having a life of their own. And when Jesus said shepherd God's flock, he was making reference to Psalm 23. Uh, Israel is the flock of God's God's own fold and Psalm 100. Isaiah 53, Luke, John 10, the good shepherd. He was making reference to this. Shepherding was an image that was very, very common, very understandable, very communicative. And it talks about the fact that they are to protect from false doctrine, lead to the accomplishment of the Great Commission, guide, feed, and sometimes chasten. Do you know why the shepherd had that stick, that shepherd stick? It was because of the walking that they did. It was something of a, a, a support for their joints. But when a sheep got out of line, what would he do? Whack! On the side of the flanks. 
And you know, oftentimes they had a crook at the top, and when a sheep went over the edge looking for grass and was on the edge, that would reach down and grab that by the sheep around the neck and yank them back up again. You see, ladies and gentlemen, chasten is also a very important part of what it means to be a shepherd. And he said, shepherd God's flock. You know, we get in ourselves in big trouble when we start to look at you all as my flock. It's not my flock. We are an under-shepherd of the great shepherd, and this is God's, you are God's flock. And I've been charged with the, with, with the responsibility of leading you and shepherding you in the place of Christ Jesus himself. And then the third thing he says this, I want you to serve as overseers. It's the responsibility to see that the church carries out the Great Commission. It's not always a likable concept, or, um, uh, concept but we take the uh, task of finding a way to fulfill the Great Commission in our setting and our time. Because you are willing, he says, not because you must, eager to serve, not under compulsion, and being examples to the flock. Willing, eagerly, and modeling. And then in 1 Timothy 5, you don't have to turn there, he talks about this double honor. Overseers then and now are bivocational. I think about 99% of the churches that I served in, the elders were also people who had jobs. But because uh, certain positions in the church, especially those who are teaching and preaching, require uh, so much more time and so much more expertise and training that some of these uh, pastors were given, or elders were given what is known as double honor. Now, it's not a double salary, uh, but it's, one, it's, a, it's a, an ability of the church to compensate them fairly for living and then to be able to give them the respect and the honor and the cooperation. And I think what Paul is saying here is that there is always an opportunity for uh, uh, people to criticize. There's always people that we say this, uh, you shouldn't do that, or you shouldn't spend that, or you shouldn't build this, or we shouldn't go there, etc., etc. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, when you have elders and pastors that you respect and admire and feel as called of God by the burden that God has put on them, and that they are uh, developing a devotional life that keeps them fed and you're getting the overflow, what the Bible calls for you all to do is to submit and follow. But Paul makes an accommodation for criticism. He said, two or three people, two or three witnesses. So we don't, uh, uh, how many of you have ever been in a conversation with somebody over a cup of coffee or out walking, whatever the case may be, and that person says, oh, I wish, I, I grumble, grumble, grumble. Uh, uh, um, you know, that, that kind of low-grade mumbling sound that we get when we grumble. And they're, they're just, how do you respond to something like that? The first thing you should say, have you shared this with Pastor so-and-so? 99 times out of 100, that person will say what? No. Well, then I want you to be quiet, don't say another word, and don't bring this up again with me until you go talk with him. And if I ask you in two weeks whether you've done that, then I'm going to take you there myself. Oh, my goodness gracious, what a different climate we would live in if something like that ever happened. He doesn't want the testimony of an elder to be uh, destroyed by little nippy dogs that come nipping at your heels all the time, where you always have to get it. It takes you away from your job. But he says, when two or three witnesses come and talk about the same complaint, 
then they are to consider that to be a valid thing to concern, uh, to be concerned about. And then he talks about the possibility of an elder having to stumble in a public life, where their testimony is no longer a credible source of leadership, but has also been tarnished by a behavior that has been observed and brought to, and that's where Matthew 18 comes in. You need to go to the pastor, talk with that person. If he doesn't admit to it, then talk with, bring another person with you and then bring it to the church. But with an elder, Paul is admonishing them to say, if there's been found some transgression, there needs to be something said in public because that elder will step down and then the church needs to know why. With discretion and, and, and being very careful about what's been said. Now, why is this so important to me? As an interim pastor, churches find themselves between pastorates for a variety of reasons. My mother lived in Largo, Florida, and they had a pastor there who was 30 years their senior pastor at the Indian Rocks Baptist Church. That pastor decided to retire. That's a very noble thing for him to do. Door Creek Church, before the senior pastor that they have now, uh, eight years ago, or uh, almost 10 years ago, 11 years ago, their senior pastor was out running, and he had a very serious stroke. Later that day, he passed away. Those are very, very understandable reasons why churches are in need of an interim pastor. Then there are other reasons that are not so noble and not so understandable. That's where I come in, or I did come in. My first commitment as I come into a church is to the church. This is the group of people that are here. However, the pastor's departure may not be solely his responsibility. As the old saying goes, it takes two to tango. And this is where God moved me, and I'm going to share this in a bit. Uh, he moved me from helping people to helping churches. Four of my seven interim churches, and this was not one of them, four of my seven interim churches were so conflicted that I called for what is known in the scriptures in Joel as a sacred assembly. It's a specific time of fasting and teaching that led up, and prayer, intentional prayer, that led up to a service of repentance and reconciliation. And I always ask the leaders in that church to take responsibility for some of that. And I learned very quickly in Nehemiah, in, um, what was it? Who was it? I have it here. There it is. In Nehemiah chapter 1. I was very much impressed with this passage of Scripture. Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah was a cupbearer in exile with the Jewish people. And he had heard that some of the exiles that had returned to Jerusalem, some of them came back, and they were learning about the fact that Ezra had reconstructed some of the temple. But in those times, the city without a wall was a city that didn't have a future. And he asked them about the wall, and they said, oh, it was in ruins. It was nothing but a, a rubble of stone and burnt-out timbers. And listen to what Nehemiah said. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, 
the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer. Listen, the prayer of your servant is praying before you today and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Not we should confess, but he said this, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. You see, ladies and gentlemen, one of the things that Ezra did was that Ezra owned the sins of Israel. Ezra, not Ezra, but Nehemiah. Nehemiah was not responsible for the sins of Israel, but he owned them because a leader doesn't take the blame for what happened, but has to own the responsibility that it happened under his watch. That's what Nehemiah did. And I, I read this to the elders, and some of them got up in front of the congregation and said, ladies and gentlemen, we screwed up. We should have been more diligent. We should have been more observant. We should have been more involved. We should have been less trusting. And this is what happened under our watch. We repent of this and own this as a responsibility because it took, it, when this happened, it caused our church great pain. And it didn't need to happen. And you know what? It's a temptation for a leader to say, I wasn't a part of it, not my doing. But you know what happens when a leader confesses responsibility? The congregation accepts him and respects him and will follow him because we're not perfect people. One of my churches, they refused to do that. And I think God withheld its blessing until they either uh, resigned or repented. So I come to the church with three primary goals. I preach God's word. I love the congregation, and I mentor church leaders. I remember standing here telling this congregation the very same thing I just said. And I walked down this aisle, and somebody came in here, and they said to me, says, Pastor, I hope you don't leave here before you realize how much we love you. Love the congregation. Tend to the flock. Nurture the flock. Care for them. But most of all, I love working with leaders. I mentor and train existing leaders by sitting there and being an advisor in their church boards and their meetings. But I also spent, and this is why I chose this topic, one of the most exciting times I had here at this church was right down there at that fellowship hall. How many of you were there? We had nine sessions, we read five books, and we all talked about various different scenarios that affect the church. And we met like we were small groups of elders, and we discussed these and came up with solutions, and we shared them with each other. It was a dynamic time. And several of the people who were not elders were in that group and said, Pastor, I wasn't aware of what the elders were doing. Now God has put that burden on me, and I want to be I feel called to be an elder. One of the most exciting times in this church was when I was doing that with you all. And ladies and gentlemen, I left here with a quiet confidence that Pastor Jeremy was going to work with a called, equipped, an excited group of men. When I became an elder, I started teaching adults and ministering to people in my flock. That created a burden in me to help get people back to normal, get back in the race. And I went to seminary, and I spent 12 years up in a church in Manitoba as an associate pastor of pastoral care. I came back down to Beaver Dam to be an associate pastor 
And I got involved in a very, very difficult and hurtful senior pastor departure. And God took that burden that I had for people, and he shifted it to churches. Helped getting churches back to normal. And that's when I began my career as a interim pastor. 26 years later, God called me and said, it's time to let loose of that calling. And in September of 28, God freed me from that burden and now gave me a call to serve in the local church. But ladies and gentlemen, that's why I chose to speak on biblical leadership. Because I think it's such an important thing and had something very much to do with my ministry here 10 years ago with this church. Let's pray.